Man, we've been in a series um, for the past month on fear, and this has been a a really um, a a good series. Um, I, I've had some feedback from you guys, and I always appreciate that. Um, but we have been uh, talking uh, so much just about the tentacles of fear, ways that they uh, can build upon each other and get out of hand, and how we can find ourselves um, just almost in a in a panic by the time fear has run its course in our lives. And I want you to think for just a second about your earliest memory of fear, okay? So I want you to just take 20, 30 seconds and try to reflect on what was the first time that you really remember being fearful, okay? Mine actually came in the form of a a dream. We had this tree in our front yard when I was a toddler, and um, it it always looked like it had a face on its trunk, and the way its branches fell, it looked like it it had arms. And one night, I dreamed that it uprooted and was running, chasing me around the yard. And I remember it's at Marco's Pizza, y'all. It was there then; it's there now. But um, it was chasing me around. I remember getting up as a small child, running into my parents' room and waking them up and telling them how scared I was of of, of that. It's my first memory of being fearful of anything in the world. Um, but if you're a parent, you definitely understand fear. When your baby has a high fever, when you lose your kid in a crowd, when your teenager is going through something and you can't fix it, you want to put your hand on it, you want to make it right, you want to use the wisdom that you've gained from life and just kind of give it to them. And fear runs its course. Like, I hope everything's going to be okay. I hope I find this. I hope we get this fixed. And each of us, every person in this room, we have confused at some point rational fear with irrational fear. There is fear that makes sense, and there's fear that doesn't make sense. And so a rational fear would be like the edge of a cliff, snake bite, mortal danger. Those are things to be afraid of. Then there's a rational fear. Rational fear is... I think I left my phone at home. Um, where we're going is there going to be Wi-Fi? Okay, that's an irrational fear. No one's posted or no one's liked my Instagram post. Um, that's an, an irrational fear. And so this month we have examined several fears. And just to recap those, I started by talking about fear of the future And then Craig talked about the fear of man. And then last week, I talked about fear that fuels dishonesty. And this morning, I'm going to talk about one of those fears that is compounding, and that's the fear of failure. And the fear of failure sets in on us early. It can come uh, very, very quick. I mean, even in, in, in your junior high years, you can find yourself battling with the fear of failure. And so it's unique, and by definition, this fear is the impending sense that you're not going to succeed at whatever. It may be a test, it may be a relationship, it may be a promotion, it may be a business venture, whatever it is that you're not going to get it just right. And for those of you that have a perfectionistic nature, it's even worse. 
because you're already your worst critic and you are you are combing the circumstance and combing it and combing it and combing it, wanting it to be perfect. And there's this constant impending sense that it's not going to work out. So the fear of failure by its nature can take up a lot of mental real estate. We can constantly have it in the back of our minds as we carry out our days and Even as we try to sleep at night, it can be present there. We can obsess about it. We can dream about it. We even make life-altering choices based upon the pressure that it gives us. And so when we think about failure, as you think about maybe something in your mind that was a time in your life that you would say, yeah, that, that was definitely a failure, I want you to Think about how that that looked. Was it something you said? Something you did? Did you mistreat someone? Maybe a spouse or a child, a friend. Did you lose a job or lose a scholarship or lose a marriage? And you look back at that particular season of your life and You say, man, if I could go back and rewrite some things, I would. Well, how did we respond to failure? Did you cry? Did you get mad? Did you blame somebody? Did you sit in shame? Did you replay it over and over and over again? Did you eat some chocolate? What did you do when you felt that sense of, man, this is a failure? Failure, too, ironically, always comes with a question, what if? We tend in hindsight to say, what if I had just done this? What if I had done that? What if, what, what if this doesn't really work out? What if I embarrass myself? What if I embarrass myself and others? We constantly are thinking about these things. It takes up a lot of mental real estate. And fear is actually the father of, of regret. So if the fear of failure has roots in your heart or rules your house, regret is going to set in as a permanent resident. You are going to look at those moments in your life and you're going to have a sense of regret. You will avoid that part of your story. You might share your life with a new friend, but you're certainly not going to talk about the failure part. Or at least that's our tendency. Why? Because regret has made resident in in our in our, our heart. So let me give you three quick truths about failure before I hop into the message. This is the pre-sermon. Sometimes pastors do that. First thing would be failure is inevitable, meaning this: even if you try to avoid failure, it's going to happen. Even if you try, I mean, you've got it on the forefront. I am not going to fail, okay? It is inevitable. It will happen in our lives, okay? John Maxwell says this, the only guarantee for failure is to stop trying. To stop trying what? All of it. That if you don't want to fail at friendship, you stop being friends with people. If you don't want to fail at business, then you stop being a business person. 
if you don't want to fail God ever, then you recluse into this spiritual shell and you build a wall and you isolate yourself. You stop trying at all of it. The second thing would be that failure is irreversible. You can't go back and make it as if it never existed. It's one of the biggest principles in life that frustrate the human condition. We want to go back now that we've learned. I want to go back and fix it. But you can't. It's irreversible. So here's what we have to do. we got to take advantage of the failure. we got to walk away with something. Forbes says this, failure is success if we learn from it. He's basically saying this. He's spinning it and saying, if you learn from it, is it really failure? So it's something for us to reflect on. The third thing would be failure is indispensable. Okay, Failure humbles us. Failure actually brings us closer to God. When we're in a state of failure, it makes us want to reach out for help. It makes us want to be around people who know about the process better than we do. Failure is the tuition you pay for success, is what Walter Brunel said. It's the tuition that we pay to be able to succeed. We are taking the failures, and in some bizarre way, We're taking all that negative energy and we're turning it and we're pushing it forward and we're using that. Maxwell even went on to write a book called Failing Forward. Being able to fail and not do well, but somehow instead of falling apart, falling forward and being able to take all of those lessons and and turn them into wisdom. Well, here's an encouraging dose of truth for all of us when it comes to fear. I'm referencing Scripture here. But the phrase, fear not. Everybody say, fear not. Fear not is in Scripture 302 times. The statement, do not fear, is in there 66 times. Do not worry, 24 times. Do not be dismayed. Now, we don't often walk around using the word dismayed. But it's shocked. As in, like, a, 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 sudden, a sudden moment of anxiety. Do not be dismayed, he says. 99 times in Scripture. Do not be, do not be. And then the phrase, do not be afraid, 33 times. So fear not, 302. Do not fear, 66. Do not worry, 24. Do not be dismayed, 99. Do not be afraid, 33 times. I think Scripture is trying to teach us something about our relationship with God, what God wants to do in our emotional construct, how He wants us to see failure, how He wants us to see fear, and how we can come out the other side being stronger and better having experienced it. So I want us to look, the rest of my time, I want to take us to Numbers chapter 13, if you're going to follow. And I want us to look at how Israel faced the fear of failure. Now, the nation of Israel is broad, it's wide, it's deep. There is, is so much we could talk about when it comes to the formulation of this nation. 
but we're only going to take a snippet of it this, this morning. But I'm going to warn you or give you a disclaimer. This is not a happy story. Okay, Numbers 13 is not, does not have a good ending. And if this were a movie, you would not watch it and then rush out and tell your friends that they need to go see it. Okay, It would be terrible. And that's what we find here. So let me give you a little bit of context before jumping in again for the purpose of, of showing you how broad this is. This is 400 years of oppression. Uh, scholars believe that for the most part, in terms of their slavery, most of them were bricklayers. All right, so this is, is, is very hard work, oppressed, poorly fed, treated terribly, um, made fun of, 400 years. Think of all the people born in that amount of time in slavery. It's all they ever knew. No context for freedom. No context for kindness. No context for vision and purpose and what do you want to do with your life. Okay, that was all predetermined. So the Jews finally escaped slavery in Egypt. And God begins to give them principles for how they can make it. All right, because they 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 don't know. They don't know what to do with their lives. And so God begins to tell them, this is how you live. This is what it means to be in a relationship. This is what it means to serve me. This is what it means to, to follow me. This is what it means to be righteous. And so he starts showing them and, and revisiting and reformulating them together as a people. He did all of this to establish a nation but there's a little bit of backstory because he's also doing it to fulfill a promise he made to a guy named Abraham. And so the bigger plan, of course, is that God uses this nation to bring salvation through Jesus. So let's look at Numbers chapter 13. I'm reading everything from the NIV today. And in verse 2, this is what is what, what happens. Now again, you've got a million plus people who don't know what to do with themselves, don't really have a skill outside of physical labor, brick building, and now they're going to become a nation that conquers a promised land. All right? So in Numbers 13, verse 2, it says, The Lord says to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. You know, I would love to put my name in some of those scriptures like, 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 like this. I mean, how, how many of you would love to hear from God and he say, which I am giving to Kevin Atkins? You know, you put your name in there, I'd be like, that's right. If he gives, he is not going to change this. Nobody can stand in our, our way. It would be very motivational and inspiring to hear you on the tail end of that. This is what he's doing. He's promising them that something amazing is going to happen. He is giving it to them. So they had left this region known as Canaan 400 years ago due to famine, and now God is circling them back to run out all the inhabitants. Why? Because it's theirs. He gave it to them. He wants them to have it. When he looks at Canaan and looks at these people, he's got them together. He wants them to have it. So he's sending them back. 
So the first thing I want to talk about is this. Obedience will reveal possibility. Anytime in our lives when we obey God, it reveals the possibilities for our lives. Listen, if you are stuck right now in your walk with God, revisit obedience. Revisit fully obeying God's word, his plan for your life, and just see what what transpires. Obedience will reveal possibility. Now let's look at verse 18 and 21. I'm going to read them together, but it says, See what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak or few or many. So they went and explored. So they, they did it. They put their faith in action. They heard God talk, and they went after it. And we would think, oh, this is going to end so well. God told them to do something. They did it, and that's it. But it's not. That's not what happened. Obedience reveals the possibility. And out of more than 600,000 able-bodied men, I want you to just get the picture. 600,000 men in this group, 12 of them get chosen. What if you were one of those 12? Wouldn't you throw your head up a little bit? I think I would. I would talk to my, the guy beside me, hey, did you get chosen? Oh, you didn't? Sorry about that. I'm packing up my backpack. I got a plan. So they're gone for about a month exploring Canaan, looking around. And if you know the story, then you know it backfires. Okay? But I believe that God wanted them to go and physically get their eyes on something. Suddenly it became more than a promise. It was more than a word. It was something tangible. It was clear. He wanted them to see it with their own eyes, what they could have if they just follow through on the promise of God. God wanted them to get excited about what he was giving them. Test drive it. Test it out. See if you don't like the thing I'm promising you. And he wants the same for us. To explore possibilities. To not be surrounded and encased in fear to where we go through life in survival mode. Just trying to make it through, man. Just trying to get through the next day. I'm trying to get my kid up and to school and fed and back in bed without hurting them. I just want to survive. It's not the way God intended for us. So watch what happens, okay? Numbers 13 and verse 26. These guys have been gone for about a month. Here they come walking back into camp, and it says they, being those 12, came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community, and there they reported to them and the whole assembly. Now this is good, right? A verbal report. In other words, you're not going to believe this. Everybody buckle up. We've got a story to share. We've, been, we've got four weeks of information we, we want to put out there. But watch this. They take it to the next level. 
and they showed them the fruit of it. This is what's happening, but look at this. And they show it to them. Okay, now, to put that into context for us, this is like you go to Sam's, and they got those little people in the end cap giving you samples. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you can look at the box and hear about how great it is, but the food is better eating it at an end cap at Sam's than when you get it home. And you eat it there, and if you're like me, you circle around, you're going for like 15 minutes, and you come back like, like you're new again. Oh, hi. I'll take enough. And before you know it, you're buying five or ten pounds of smoked mini sausages, you know, walking out with it. This is what it means to show them the fruit. This is what they, they, they did, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's part of who we are. It's like when you show it to us. You know, um, if, if, if you've bought a car, and if there are any car dealers in here, shame on you, because this gets me every time, you know. I remember one time uh, I was looking at a car, and they were like, hey, just take it home for the day. Like, what? Yeah, just, you know, 24-hour test drive. Are you kidding me? Take it home. Yeah, park it in your garage. Sleep in it. We don't care what you want, what you do. They know when they show you the fruit that you do not care any longer. You've seen it at your house you reek of new car smell and you want it they're brilliant and tricksters and this is why i never understand this next verse okay so let's look at verse 28 and 29 of numbers 13 and he says to them but the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and large. And we even saw descendants of Anak there. That's giants. Saw some giants there. The Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and all the other ites all live along the Jordan. Something happened when they began to explore the possibility and look at it for themselves, fear crept in on them and consumed them. And they stopped exploring possibilities, hear me, and started counting the obstacles. This is no longer about fruit and possibilities, and we can see ourselves living there. This is no longer about new car smells. This is about if we go there, bad things are going to happen. Look at that and that and that and that. And some of you in this room, and I don't want to be crass, some of you right now are lonely as you've ever been. Because you are fearful that someone, anyone, is going to hurt you. You're scared to advance in your career because you don't want to get there and fail at it. Your, your dream for life 
has backed way up and become really small. Why? Because somewhere in your life, somewhere in your story, something happened to you and you stopped exploring possibilities and now as an adult, all you do is count obstacles. If I do this, this could go wrong and this could go wrong and this could go wrong and look at that and that and that. And that's how you live your life. Fear clarifies obstacles. When we are consumed by fear, the obstacles become clearer. They become bigger. We feed them. We we constantly put our attention upon the obstacle rather than the possibility. Of course life has obstacles. Of course it's not easy. The bigger the obstacle, the bigger the possibility. I mean, he was not sending them out to conquer the Powder Puff Football League. David did not go and get five stones from a creek bed because he was fighting Frodo. He was fighting the strongest guy in the army. He was big and nasty and loud. He was big, but behind him was a bigger possibility. God is not sending us into a future of small things. And maybe your faith is like this. The Bible says that each of us has been given a measure of faith. You say, Kevin, I don't have any faith. Well, you got a little bit. you got a measure. Jesus goes on to say, O ye of little faith. He goes on to say, Thy faith has made you well. Or your faith. He even goes on to say, Great faith. None, I haven't seen any faith like, like, like yours. They're, they're, your faith can grow. Some of you are operating from the original measure of faith. And this is how you view God and how you view your life and how you view your experience and the hope you have for your children and the hope you have for your community. And everything is done through the lens of this type of faith. Fear confuses strength. You know, when, when we started this campus, there, there was some criticism. People had heard about New Life at Conway, and they, 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 they knew, you know, if they're going to bring that type of church here, there, there, was, there was just criticism. Things were said like, there are enough churches here. Let's just push people into the already existing churches. Why is there a need to start another one? This is a conversation I had over and over and over again as I met with people. People said, no one in this community is going to help you financially. We're already supporting so many things. There's already so many good things going. People have already decided this is what what they're going to do. You are going to get into a church, and it will die from being financially broke. People looked at me and they said, no one can pastor well in a city they grew up in. Like, you got to move off to pastor somewhere. And I personally, I had two really big fears. I've shared this with you before, but I had two really big fears. The first one was, what if no one shows up? No one. Like, we get up and there's nobody here but our families. 
The second big fear was what if people show up? Like, like, like what if people come? What do we do? <laughs> My prayer at that point was very, very simple. It was, Lord, in a city of thousands, give us hundreds. Let's just, you know, I may have been operating from this much faith, but it was God in, in, in a city where there are thousands of people living, give us hundreds of people, pastor. And I want you to look at Numbers chapter 13 because something amazing happens among those 12. Chapter 13, verse 30, he says this, Then Caleb silenced the people. Okay? I like this. And what, what you know about Caleb is this was probably not done very professionally. He was like, hey, everybody, shut up. This is him, okay? And so he silences everybody, and he says, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can do it. Man, good. It's like a Nike commercial. Every pastor wants a Caleb. And some of you are Caleb's, and I thank you for that. And this is what it says. Caleb had a different spirit. Y'all are different. We love you. Every pastor wants a Caleb. In verse 31, watch this. But the men who had gone up with him, so 11 men are looking at him, and they say, say, say this, we cannot attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Eleven of them. You got one guy from a Nike commercial and eleven people being Debbie Downer. We can't do it. These men were supposed to be the elite. They were the Jewish Navy SEALs. Can you imagine if our Navy SEAL team went out on a mission and here they are, snuck up on the enemy and the leader's like, hang on a second, guys. Like, lone wolf to wolf pack. We're going to need an extraction point. Uh, Roger that, lone wolf. What's going on? Well, they... They're very large. I'm afraid they might shoot back. Can you imagine? These were the elite men of faith, leaders, driven, full of wisdom. We cannot do it. So I'm saying this. Even people who are giants in the faith, loaded with skill, looked up to, respected in their community, can have moments where they are distracted by the obstacle and have forgotten about the possibility and the fear of failure sweeps in. This nation of Israel in its early days were notorious for going, let's stone Moses and go back to Egypt. Can we do that? At least we can go back. The King James Version says, at least we can go back and eat the onions. Let's, let's go back and have onions by the Nile and bake bricks and kill this guy and forget about it. You talk about distracted by fear of failure. 
They were intimidated. Their strength was confused. And years later, after all those with doubt had died, you know, God said, okay, listen, there's going to have to be some death involved to get you guys to move. So all of y'all who, who don't believe, we're going to sit out here and circle the wagons until y'all die. And that's what happened. And when all the doubt died, they took the land. And you know what happened? Rumor of them coming preceded them like a tidal wave. And fortified cities fell, and armies fled, and the sun stood still. Why? Because it was never about human strength. God doesn't measure His plan with your muscle. He's got His own strength behind it. And last, quickly, trust eclipses fear. Trust will do it. What I love about David is he writes in Psalms in, 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 in the 50s there, it seems to be a, a chronological display of a personal revival for him. This is when he's saying, purge me with hyssop and I'm going to be clean. Uh, renew my, my life. I, I re- repent. And, and he's having all these, all these thoughts about about the strength of God. And he writes in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, he says this, When I am afraid, everybody say afraid. When I am afraid, when I am fearful, I put my trust in you. It doesn't mean necessarily that that fear is, is never there. It doesn't mean that I've I've completely conquered it. It doesn't mean that I've it's it's run off, but it means that truth, the trust factor comes in and eclipses the fear. It covers it. It's stronger than. And he says, "In God whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid." And then he reflects on this and says, "What can man do to me?" Now, you've got to fill that, that, that blank in. What can blank do to me? And let the, the faith that you put into God fill that, that, that in for you, the, that you've got trust in Him to grow and get through it, and get past it, and be wiser and stronger Like Caleb with a different spirit, you can look at your circumstance and say, yeah, it's big. But listen, behind that is an unbelievable potential for our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids and every generation that follows us. We are on the forefront of something great. This is what he knew. See, God rarely will show us the whole plan, but he always will show you part of it. He doesn't always reveal and and show you the full plan, but he will say, this is the next step. And if you'll trust me with the next step, I'll reveal the next one. If we've learned anything together in this series, I hope that we've learned that what it can be like if we trust and we don't worry, what it can be like if we pray through anxiety, what it can be like if you have confidence in the bigger picture. But the biggest takeaway that I hope we have today is you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be. Now this is up up to you. It's the same will 
that chooses Christ or rejects Him, that same will determines whether you say to your spirit that you are going to stay and be okay with fear or you're not okay with it and you don't want to be afraid anymore and you're going to lean into the Word and the promises of God. You have to use your will right now to choose. Am I going to be fearful? Am I going to be controlled by this? Is fear going to be the loudest voice in my life? And then you have to choose. All right? So I want you to bow your heads with me really quick, and I want to pray.